And now, Hollywood Prospectus. And on the other line, fighting through everything to write that demand letter, it's Andy Greenwald! Hey, buddy. What's up, man? I was going to make an IBS joke, but it just doesn't seem appropriate. No, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Um, I feel like we owe people an apology. We missed a week. We we, We missed a week. We missed a slap. That's right. We missed a slap, which the joke was on us. We then had to double, and in my case, triple slap. Triple slap. Yeah. We're going to get to that at the end of the show. I just wanted to say the reason we didn't record last week is I was a little under the weather, and the way I know I was really feverish was because when I was catching up on the slap, I kind of didn't mind some of it. Like, <laughs> like that's when I that's when I called my I doctor. I think that's called malaria. Like, yeah. <laughs> no, this was this was when I checked that the antibiotic I was on affects the central nervous system. We're going to talk like about uh, the slap. We're going to talk about Spectre and Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, and we're also. We're going to pre- about- preview Mad Men a little bit, too. Yeah, right? we're going to talk a little bit about Mad Men, and we want to get ki- stuff kicked off uh, touching on a show that we haven't talked about in a couple of weeks. Not since actually the last time I was out in New York. Uh, Better Call Saul, Andy, which is about five, six episodes deep, right? Further. We are at nine tonight. Oh, Episode really? nine airs tonight. There's only one left after tonight in the first season. Wow. And we we let it slide, and I actually, I don't know if you had the same thing. Like, I just... I wrote about the first three episodes, thought they were really, really good, yeah. and then let it let it slip for a minute, revisited. Guess what? This show's fantastic. Yeah. They're messing around and, and making, need, like, Chinatown down there or something. We need to talk about this. And so I'm, I'm writing about it. I was going to have it for today, but this Daily Show news happened. But here's my here, – here's let me just give you my, my, my take on you this. Set, you then, set the table. I love watching this show. And I know that that sounds like a simple or reductive thing to say, especially if one's job is to have opinions about television shows. But there aren't that many shows that I love watching. Like, one of the shows I love watching is Chopped because I don't write about it, and it's about food. Mm -hmm. There are many shows that I admire. There are a lot of shows that, you know, I struggle with week to week. Some shows I get distracted by. The Americans, my favorite show, can be rough to watch. It's dark. (laughs) Better Call Saul is a pleasure to sit through. And I feel like this alone deserves some trumpeting because these guys know how to make tv on such a high level and are doing it in such a surprising way that it is it's unlike any other experience at the moment because it's just so nice i thought that uh when this show first got announced and even when it first aired like when the first episode first couple episodes happened and and some of our some some Oh, the more minor characters from Breaking Bad turned up. One of them at least turned up on uh, early on. on on Better Call Saul. I think I was a little bit skeptical about the need for it and about what kind of role it would play in the legacy of Breaking Bad and whether or not it was really a necessary kind of uh, accoutrement to it. But, man, uh, it has completely gone 360 now where I am at once completely absorbed and immersed in the world and the story that they're telling yeah. and feel like, almost like an unbearable like desire and anxiety about the universe of breaking bad colliding with it do you know what like I mean? you were hope like you want it to happen or you or well, the because fact that every it action every character you're just like kim's not in breaking bad like you know oh, right jimmy you know chuck's not in breaking bad so what happens to these people and that that has um that has such a, a it casts such a shadow over over the proceedings of of Better Call Saul. And speaking of shadows, 
the other thing that I love about this show, and we can talk about this, you know, we can go back and forth about it, but I think it might secretly be the best directed show on television. Um, the direction on the show so far has been astounding. I don't, Amazing. but it's just like the the extent to which they have like distinguished it from Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad had a lot yeah. of wide open spaces. Breaking Bad seemed like these little ants walking across a desert. This is everybody is hemmed in, in imprisoned, encased in this sort of suburban uh, like business plaza, you know, prison of 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 modern life and you see these little shots like mike sitting in the parking kiosk with all the lines boxing him in and you've just they've created a whole new world out of like a couple of grains of sand from a world that they had already created yeah i think the visual language is definitely borrowed from breaking bad i'm thinking about like one of the episodes that michelle mclaren did late late in the run like in the second half of season five episode i think it was right before the end of, of Hank and Gomi, and there was a meeting that they had underneath some freeway overpasses, and they did that trick where the angles looked like bars, yeah. and they were trapped by yeah, them. Yeah. But 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 you're right. There's there's a there's a fineness to it. well, two things. One is that there's a different influence that I think we're gonna you're excited to talk about. I know, which is like it's more of a noir show. Yeah. So there's definitely heavier shadows and and a darker darker light, and that's obviously helped by the fact that in Chuck's house there is only natural light, and they're having a great time with that. But um, I I think that. I just keep coming back to this this feeling that this is a, you know, Walter White as a character lived a sort of milquetoast suburban life and then fell down into this darker underworld. But it was, for the most part, it was an, an impressive underworld, right? Like, remember the, the, the super lab that they had? It was all clean lines and it felt like a science lab. Yeah. They were just doing something illegal. Jimmy McGill at this stage in his existence, and actually all the way through Breaking Bad, is living much a much fringier, fringier life. And so when you look at something, like, it could just be a throwaway choice on another show. Like, the, the house they chose to film the Kettleman family in. Yeah. I mean, that place sucks. Yeah. And it sucks in the best possible way. I mean, obviously, they have, like, five acres of scrubland where they can go camping in behind their house. But the scene where Jimmy confronts them and reveals that he's had the money taken, and you just see that the, the, the kind of cheapness of the wood veneer. You know, the fact that they have this space because you can get space in New Mexico, I guess. I'm not a – unlike you, I'm not a real estate expert yeah. in, the, in the American Southwest. But there's no, they have nothing to fill the space with. And these are like the small choices that filmmakers make that there's rarely time to make on TV. And, they, and this, they've done it here. Do you think that this has something to do with the fact that they have a character – you had a character in Saul in Breaking Bad who provided comic relief almost for Breaking Bad as a, like an unbearably dark show at times. But Saul was always there to kind of – Bring a few laughs and kind of like offer almost a, a like a wacky spin on the universe, and then so you and often he was the one who could jump in when things got very dark and be like, "What are we actually talking about?" Yeah, here? exactly. And so then you bring him into you you create a world around that character, and inevitably, I think I thought it was going to be more comic. You know what I mean? I, I thought that they would yes. probably build a world of a lot of caricatures around this character who often looked like a caricature on Breaking Bad, and um, yeah. to surround him with people that are obviously these really flawed and humane characters. Um, it's just a fascinating choice, and I just can't believe it works so well. And beyond it, all that, exactly what you're saying in the beginning, it's just fascinating television. I mean, it's so far, you know, they have succeeded perfectly in, you know, they had the three-episode run of The Kettlemans pretty much, and now they're working on the Sam Piper, uh, you know, sort of retirement case. So it's almost like a law procedural that's, yeah, that's all there too. Yeah, and it's like, but it's, they're trojan horsing in what is, you know, possibly almost a more 
compelling, at least more subtle fall from grace than the one that Mr. White went through. I think that's totally right. I mean, let, just in terms of the intelligence of what they did here, they front-loaded some of the Breaking Bad stuff. I don't know when in their story-breaking process they decided on it, but they were exactly right to do Tuco in episode two, have that Michelle McLaren-type episode to, yeah. to, to give people that jolt. I mean, it's, it's like I always fall back on drug-dealing metaphors, but that's what Breaking Bad was. He gave people a taste that this still could happen, we're still in that world, and then they pulled back, right. having hooked people. As it turned out, they didn't need to hook people. The ratings have been bananas since day one. But... I actually think that you you mentioned the you know the sort of decline of a of a, a man. I mean that's what Breaking Bad was about, and the and the brilliance of it, and the sort of chilly perfection of it was that it took one person on one story from beginning to end, and it went straight down. Yeah. I at first was dubious of those those opening shots of the series of Better Call Saul. You know the black and white images of Saul and Cinnabon, and I because you know I I kind of am against this idea in general. It works when it works, but of fixed endpoints for series. Yeah, right. What we've seen now in the way Better Call Saul has developed is two things. One, Peter Gould and Vince Gilligan have been very smart about playing with time. We know it could jump all over the place, which frees up the narrative. But also, I actually feel more optimistic now than ever before about the story jumping forward and to past the end of Breaking Bad. Mm -hmm. Because what they've created by making Jimmy the way he is, he is now a much richer human being and character. And we have the sense... Now, our, you know, all the things we've learned about him, about his, you know, putting himself through law school in the mailroom, his ability, his desire to do paperwork and jump into dumpsters and just keep doing and keep trying. Yeah. That he will keep trying. That the Omaha Cinnabon is not the end of the story. So the potential here is limitless. I think that there's something interesting about, you know, the, the Mr. Chips t- turns into Scarface was always the tagline for Breaking Bad. And it's probably a quote that followed Gilligan around for like the entire series. What interests me more about Saul in some ways, obviously there's recency bias, but what what interests me about Saul is that there's this idea that like Jimmy was a con man and Jimmy gets his law degree and immediately asks Chuck for a job and Jimmy is always kind of looking for an angle and looking for the easy way out. And obviously looking for the easy way out is a cliche because often when people are quote unquote looking for the easy way out, it becomes much harder. Uh, Things become much harder. And it's interesting to watch this guy sort of fight against this demon that is mostly looking to get on the same level as guys like Hamlin or, or you know, the same level as guys like his brother or whoever, or maybe even have a law firm that's a kind of place that Kim would want to join or, or whatever it is that he's aspiring to. And he keeps taking these shortcuts and these shortcuts wind up being wrong turns. And I love that that's going to eventually lead him to wherever he winds up going. You know, he obviously yeah. becomes a drug lawyer because that's where the money is, you know? Well, the other thing that we haven't really talked about head on is the episode that sent made everyone crazy, right? Which yeah. was the big Mike-centered episode, which was called Five O, And that was an amazing episode of television. There is no getting around it. And beyond yeah. that, Jonathan Banks' performance in it is one of the more amazing things I've ever seen on TV. Maybe I'm just going to leave it at that. I've ever seen on TV. Because if you have someone whose entire gift is total stillness and blankness and he turns that into sort of an art form you suddenly see that he actually underneath that exterior he can break yeah and he's been saving it for this scene and for this moment in this character that we have grown to both love and admire and fear it was amazing i mean i i had no idea about i, I mean a i didn't know jonathan banks was capable of that b i didn't know that he had this background as like do you know that he he went to drama school with kevin klein I didn't know that. <laughs> and I mean, I know he was in, like, 48 together. Hours and Beverly Hills Cop and stuff. Yeah. 
but he always struck me as one of those guys whose whose blank toughness was his thing. Yeah, you right. know, and that he yeah. brought that one unique thing to every role, which he does. But so that was amazing. But I I, I did want to say that to me, as good as that episode was, it was the next episode that was even better. Because of that was the episode where there's um I think it's the beginning of the there's a lot more of the relationship with Kim in that episode. Yeah, and well she asks him to come babysit. Yeah, and there's just Oh wait, this, Kim. Kim like in terms of like Kim doing all the, the work for the, them? No, well there's the then it, it that's the episode the Mike episode was amazing because it brought this it, it was about things that we knew from Breaking Bad. Sure. The next episode was like, well, this is just a great episode of legal TV with these characters crisscrossing and their reasons for existing together crisscrossing. Right. Uh, and I just thought that was pretty amazing to watch. Um, we have to talk about the human flame emoji. Reese Horn? I've been down with her since Whitney. <laughs> I, I've been down with nothing since Whitney. <laughs> um, I can't believe you called this. Yeah, she's great. She is the Bacall of Basic Cable. She was le- she legit is- awesome on Whitney. Like, I mean, I watched, like, f- however many episodes of Whitney, possibly the entire run, you know? <laughs> possibly. You don't want to admit too much. She's so good on this yeah. show. And she's such a good foil for Odenkirk. And, you know, her, her presence, it just, it, it, just these little moments that I think um, people who are less confident in making TV would never leave time for. Just, like, this little shred of their relationship, which is, the waiting outside of each other's place of business or home with a cigarette and they yeah. share the cigarette. And it's, I think the real trick in TV often is communicating intimacy because you're so often you're servicing the plot or you're, you're just doing much bigger swing relationship stuff. A tiny gesture like that and then repeating it tells us everything. Do you think that part of the, that kind of like a shot like that or a move like that, like, cause that's how the, I believe one of the opening shots of this se- of the season is her smoking outside in the smoking in the dark parking lot and he walks by yes. her. Um, yeah. I kind of wonder whether or not that's an example of Gilligan and Gould playing with house money. Like they have so much goodwill accrued. And even though this is a gamble in terms of like, this could tarnish the legacy of one of the great, most critically acclaimed yeah. shows ever. They're still like, yeah, but you guys trust us because we've made, we, you already yes. know in this world, we know what we're doing. Um, I just wanted to touch on one other thing. Cause you mentioned um, the Mike plot. One of the one things that I wanted to ask you about was at the end, not this episode that's airing on Monday night, but the episode from last week at the end when um, his daughter-in-law says, well, this is, of course, is just a drop in the bucket. And yeah. it seems to trigger Mike going back to a life of crime. Do you also think that there was a little bit of like puppeteering going on by his daughter-in-law? To get more money? Yeah. Yes. I, think I mean, that's she's definitely like, on the that's table. another character who I don't. She's not on Breaking Bad, right? She appeared, I think, in the background. I don't know if it's been recast. I don't know if that character ever had any lines. I don't even remember knowing for sure that it was his daughter-in-law, not his daughter. I don't remember because well, the much whole thing the, is that Kaylee's his granddaughter, and that that's all we knew, and yeah. we knew that she lived with her mom, but we didn't know much more than that. Okay, all right. Um, I I think that again, like Carrie Condon is a great actor who Mm -hmm. has, you know, she was on she was on Luck. She had a great appearance on Walking Dead, and so again, now she has this role to play with, and there's just so much possibility. I I think what you were saying about playing with house money is important to consider with this show because there are aspects of it that are very good, Mm -hmm. and I mean that as opposed to great. And there's like a there's something that comes out. Some people will be listening to the show on Tuesday. Plot line is like pretty straightforward. Like that would happen on on like. A Fox law procedural. Yes, and I think that one of the big emotional turns that happens in tonight, Monday night's episode, episode 109, 
has kind of been telegraphed, and it kind of isn't that earth-shattering. Mm-hmm. But when you take, but much of TV isn't earth-shattering. It's the way you tell it, and the, you know the story that you build around it. Um, my only real complaint is that I just would it kill anyone to get an actor with a Philadelphia accent? Like, would it would it be that hard <laughs> to fly someone in? You know who I think? Because I think Melissa George maybe could fill in there. Don't get me started. Just don't pop. Don't pop the cork on that until you're Melissa ready to George go. George just rolling in like, yeah, Mike, you forgot your water. I could see Melissa George taking copies of the Pennsylvania sketches on Kroll Show <laughs> and studying them like Lee Strasberg tapes. Yeah, and just being like, this is how people talk. Yo, are you going to an ashram, hun? It's going to be all about no. It's going to be like some bottled water. Yeah, and uh, you're going to go up oh. on the roof and have that bottled water or what, hun? <laughs> uh. Don't tease me with slap talk. Okay. Don't tease our fans. I don't fans. want to get too, too, too carried um, away with slap talk because I actually think that one of the – something I wanted to talk about with Spectre, it plays off nicely here with, with uh, Better Call Saul, and that's this idea of universes and expansion and contraction of these worlds that people create, right? Because so we, we, we had on Friday the 24th Bond film got its first trailer, um, Spectre. Yeah. Uh, are you a big Bond fan? I am a big Bond liker. I like Bond, yeah. but I don't. I'm. I, I am. And would not... you say that you preferred like Connery, like light, more lighthearted stuff to the and, and or to the darker, creeping Nolan stuff? Well, it's funny you you ask that because you know, isn't it's like what people say about there's this theory called the pizza cognition theory where your ideal pizza is the first pizza you ever really ate sure. as a kid. Yeah. So you know, if if you grew up in Chicago, then you eat that weird casserole abomination if you grew up you know <laughs> eating boston style or whatever that's your pizza for life yeah you know i'm a dalton baby are the first you really? bond movies i saw the first one i saw was living daylights okay which i still ride for i love that movie um that's the one where they go sledding on the cello who's case. in who's in uh what was the nintendo 64 game we used to play that was goldeneye yeah that was pierce brosnan yeah um but to, to be fair chris we really played perfect dark that's which true. was not exactly a a bond theme although a similar game um so looking back on those movies like i thought those were just dope and mm-hmm. then now I, I i've seen some of them since like license to kill the other Dalton movie is just a hot mess <laughs> i mean it is kind of disastrous I don't think and I've mean seen license to kill since i first watched it on vhs benicio del toro is hilarious he's in, in that yes he is Whoa. he is um but anyway uh to your point you wrote a really smart piece about this today on Grantland.com, and I, you sell it because I think that I am falling on the opposite end of the spectrum. I think I am against the creeping Christopher Nolanization of this franchise or the franchising of this franchise, yeah, but so I think you, you, you explained this well. If you watch the Spectre trailer, the first shot is of the sort of smoking remnants of the MI6 headquarters. The next bit is uh, the woman who plays Money Penny now, Evie Money Penny, who used to be an agent and has now become sort of like the executive assistant of MI6. She's talking to Bond about stuff that they found at Skyfall, which was his ancestral home, but is also the name of the last film. And then there it cuts again, and after going across like a foggy lake on a boat, Bond confronts... I mean, this all is it's a trailer, so it they might not go in this order and it might not be this but bonnie confronts uh mr white who's sort of a member of the quantum organization uh that before specter had been the sort of villainous yeah i know and you know what try reading all the wikipedia plots for quantum casino royale skyfall it's like you'd you'd literally just be like this is not this is not how like 
a movie would get made. Like if I told you the plot of this movie, you'd just be like, "No, nah, I'm gonna pass yeah. on that one. Hot pat, hard pass." But right. But these are these are the plots. But my point was basically all of the images, with the exception of the end with Christoph Waltz, all the images reference earlier Bond films and Bond films within the last four films from Casino Royale, Quantum Solace, uh, Skyfall, and now Spectre. And it was just very fascinating to me. You know, Sam Mendes, the director, has claimed has said that 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 this is Spectre is an explicit sequel to Skyfall, and that they have decided to make this into the um the trilogy or the quadrology that they never had with bond even though they made 24 films because bond films would always reset either they would reset with a new bond they would just pretend like blofeld was back you know what i mean like they would right and and relationships that existed in one film would be just completely gone yeah, and, and he even was though, always unattached and i got and... a couple people pointed out rightly on twitter that there are plenty of mentions of like bond's uh late wife who dies in for to majesty's honor majesty's secret service or there's various a, like a couple things became hard can yeah but that's not the way that those those things are background and now they're in the foreground now though things that have happened to bond in the previous film affect what happens in this film he's still upset about vesper uh from the first film passing away so he's he's affected by the world this is now a world and each story affects the next story and I just thought that was a really fascinating change. It's what's happening. They do that with Avengers. They do that. They did that with Batman. They're doing it with. Um, I mean, they do it with Fast and Furious. I mean, like they're talking about like it's, what happens in Fast and Furious Six as if it's what happened in, in Godfather Two, and that's no, fine. That, but, it, it, it's TV serialization and yeah. movies now, and it's just become what what happens. That's how franchises are built and maintained. Right, which is interesting because you would think the only reason to make sequels would be to continue to cash in on a well worn formula, right? Right, but I think you had a pretty interesting – I thought the point you made in this piece that you should make rather than me was – I hadn't seen it from this perspective before. The idea that, that this might be a reason why a director like Sam Mendes is going to come back. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think it's why these guys, especially after a commercial success of one film, probably get more artistic leeway in the next film. You know, I think that that is the trade-off when they're like, if Joss Whedon is on the fence about coming back for Avengers 2 or if Sam Mendes is wishy-washy about coming back for Bond 24, they get certain guarantees about what kind of story they're allowed to tell. And they're probably more interested, rather than starting from scratch, in expanding and continuing some of the story that they've started. Right. Um, now, and I think all these guys secretly want to be able to make their Godfather 2 or their Empire Strikes Back. Like the subversive, dark, yep. um, neurotic screwed up blockbuster and you know i think that that's kind of a a unicorn but it's still interesting to watch them try i think that's a very great and generous take on it because my first reaction to it was dread because i'm just so sick of the the dark weight of these franchises and not just the fact that they are all now dark and serious but literally the weight the the crushing storytelling that you need to just pick up from the embers of one movie and then carry into the next one as if everything has always been one plot. Yeah. And especially when the appeal of Bond has always been not all I mean I guess I'm not the one to say always since I'm just a big Dalton head, but has often been the relative lightness of it. Right? True. I mean there 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 is there is there is death and treason and misadventure and all kinds of things, but he is suave and carries on, and that's kind of fun. And you look at the box office for that movie, The Kingsman, which that's the only thing I've seen of the movie is the box office. Right. But that struck me as the kind of Bond movie that many people used to enjoy, and yeah, they are not light. making the that movie The violence has no real consequences. You're never really you know worried about a lot of things. I think that 
you could say that, but you could also say that Skyfall is the most successful Bond movie. So, well, that's what Sony said. Yeah. And the other thing Sony said in emails that we weren't supposed to see is that Spectre <laughs> looks absolutely awful and the script is terrible, which is kind of a weird position to be in because generally skeptics online are always going to say that. But to have the studio be, to have insight into that and have the studio be like, we don't know, we just got to make another one. See, the is thing is, is that no matter how much we might be getting sold a, a certain bill of goods with, with the story, you want to know what matters about, like, these last two Bond films to me? Roger Deakins. Yeah. Uh, a good villain. Yeah. And, and, and Craig. And, Craig's and Craig. Yeah, because Craig is, is, is a twist on the Bond character. His sort of, like, yeah. smoldering, you know, scarred character is much different than the ones that came before him. Yeah, he. I, I think he's a great Bond, and so I think that that's another great way to look at it, which is that these are the best movies. Tail. These are movies that have been tailored to his particular skill set. Yeah. As Bond, which are not light. He is a lugubrious, yeah. heavy presence. Yeah, he's a pinch um, actor or something. Yeah. So l- let's talk about another trailer yeah, for yeah. another long-running <laughs> franchise that got you super hype and resulted in a good blog post on the internet. Uh, Mission Impossible Five, Rogue Nation. Rogue Nation. Where my army? Uh, do they? Is there? Are there any bad Mission Impossible movies? Did you like two? I guess that's the borderline. Two one. is. Uh, two is a very visually striking movie, and it stars Aisha from The Slap. Yes, that's who right. is an actor who I love to watch in anything. Yeah. Um, you know, so there were things about it that were impressive, like. Like Tom Cruise's mullet. Isn't there like the, I, I, that? That definitely has like doves were being released in during a gunfight, right? It is. I mean, here's the thing to say about that movie: it is a full John Woo parody, but Directed at the same by time, John Woo. <laughs> but that's the thing. That yeah. the thing about this franchise that was so exciting um, up until honestly until this new movie was the way that this was a multi-billion-dollar franchise that was actively being handed like a baton from interesting filmmaker to interesting filmmaker yeah. and that the series could could uh, adapt. So I get and, the feeling like you do not feel like Christopher McQuarrie is on the same level as John Woo and J.J. Abrams. Or no. Bird. Well, I mean, I wouldn't – in terms of a visual stylist, I wouldn't put J.J. Abrams up there either unless you're super into lens flare. But right. in terms of like – he has a very specific type of storytelling that he's yeah, good at. Yeah, it's like very yeah. There's a degree of meta to it where that whole thing and, with and, the rabbit's foot was like, yeah, what's the rabbit's foot? And that's exactly the he point. He influenced more the writing of it. Whereas like Brad Bird, it was his first live action movie in Ghost Protocol. I hope he didn't influence the writing of it because that movie was incoherent. <laughs> but in terms of like spectacle, it was yeah. worthwhile. Yeah. Um, I mean, Macquarie made Valkyrie, right? Which yeah, is a and Jack perfectly Reacher. fine. Oh, we made Jack Reacher, yeah, which we saw. That was a Grantland staff outing. Yeah. Um, the worrisome thing about that to me is that McQuarrie is also he's just one of he's one of Cruz's guys. Like he is the guy that Tom Cruise trusts to make movies. For I'm him. fine with that. And I mean, I, I wasn't fine with it, and then I saw this trailer, and it looks like a lot of fun. Yeah, I also just I think that I, I think that the uh, these movies are just really dependably um, they deliver. On, uh, yes. on like just a really satisfying entertainment, and even if they're probably twenty five minutes too long and have three plot twists too many, they're still just always awesome. You know that this was this movie was they we've talked about this before, right? They shut down production for like six weeks to write a new ending. Like, I'm sure. And just kept. Yeah. It just no, but they announced it. Like it, it's many movies do that, but this is the, one of the rare examples where they were like, no, just keep craft services going, but we have to write something new. I have. This this all brings up a very important point, a kind of a new story that I think we need to address. Oh, okay, because I got more Rogue Nation takes. But okay. if you want to... 
Well, you hit me with these first. One thing I want to ask you about is uh, how do you think Jeremy Renner feels on the set of these movies? That's the most important question for HP listeners. I, I saw him in the trailer and I like I covered my eyes out of embarrassment. Yeah. Like it's not just that he's in this movie in a role that makes no sense. It's not just that he is once again the dust mop of a billion dollar franchise. Yeah. It's that. In the trailer for this movie, he's a guy wearing a suit who's not the other guy wearing a suit. Let's talk about Jeremy Renner's choices since Hurt Locker, shall we? <laughs> okay. Do you know how many times we've done this? It doesn't get any better. Jeremy Renner signs up to be a, I'm not talking about chronologically. We're just going across the board here. Is in the Avengers yet has no lines and no. has not been given a solo movie. And up until I think he's going to be in Captain America 3, but has not yeah. been in any of the other, like, uh, no, he like, he actually debuted pre Avengers. He was in he was in uh, Thor. He was in Thor. Is he in Thor? Is he in like the post credit sequence of Thor? No, no. There's one of these movies, and I think it's Thor. He's he's in like a shield bunker. Cool. And they're like they're like the hawk is watching from up above, and he's like, I've got a bow and arrow, but no character. Um, but so bring he's it. In bring it. Here he's comes... in Mission Impossible, and he was supposed to inherit this franchise. I thought. Let's be clear. Because we're both saying the same thing here. He was supposed to inherit both franchises. He was supposed to be the new star of the Mission Impossible franchise and the new star of the Bourne franchise. Oh, that's right. That was getting There are that. fewer franchises. There are no franchises in this world that you and I care about more. Right. And they were handed to this actor that we particularly like. And somehow, since then, he has been more or less like relegated to furniture in Avengers. Can't get a meal on the set of friggin' Mission Impossible because Tom no. Cruise won't let him eat. No. Matt Damon straight up came back and like took his corner back for Bourne, yeah. and he was in Hansel and Gretel. First of all, do you think... <laughs> and I mean, also, no offense, has a very strange living arrangement if you read TMZ. Very strange, and getting stranger. Let me just say, whoever his agent was should probably be investigated for some kind of misrepresentation yeah. or fraud. Because yeah, if he is probably running Sandpiper Retirement Community. <laughs> with his multi-millions. But I'm just saying, if you are an agent in Hollywood, there are a few things that you know for sure. Yeah. And one of the things you know for sure is that Tom Cruise is not going to be Wally Pipped out of anything. Right. I'm not even saying this for religious reasons. I'm saying this that Tom Cruise is a lunatic in terms of focus <laughs> and competitiveness. Yeah. And when you straight up tell him that, okay, we're going to make Mission Impossible 4 and we'll let you climb the highest building in the world without a stuntman because that's what you want to do. But, by the way, we are actively casting for someone who will take this franchise yeah. to new heights. No pun intended. And then we ask no that Burj guy Khalifa. to stand, out, like, stand on the inside of that window and like hold your purse while you climb down it. Like, that's crazy. And then mid-filming of that movie, they're like, so this character... Maybe he's a bad guy. Maybe it's his son. Yeah. Maybe it's his brother. I don't know who this guy yeah. is. His name is like John. You, I, I need now. Who cares I need about John. What I need is an entourage that's about the last five years of choices Jeremy Renner's made, where it's just like Ari Gold, but then he's like, "Hey, buddy. Yeah. So just got off the phone with uh, Brad Bird. It sounds like yeah. you're not gonna be the star of the movie. <laughs> Sorry, big guy." See you at the what Ivy? <laughs> because here's the other thing. Just hey, purely... buddy, me again. Sorry, doesn't sound like you have any lines in this Avengers movie. So cool news for Paul Greengrass fans. Not cool for you. Um, just on a purely human level, being on the set of a major blockbuster is dull as dirt. Yeah. Like, unless you're the guy climbing a building, there's nothing to do for, like, three months. Well, thank God he has, like, a, a, a hobby, like house flipping. 
a profitable house flipping business. Let me say, additionally, <laughs> here, here, here's my other regret about uh, Mission Impossible Rogue, Rogue Nation. Two things. I thought you were onto something interesting with this idea of directors wanting to do these things to make their Godfather 2, to make their Ghost in the Machine sure. kind of thing. Um, it's funny that Mission Impossible sort of was the one franchise that let interesting directors be interesting. And now we live in a world where a guy like Colin Trevorrow makes a tiny indie movie called Safety Not Guaranteed and then gets Jurassic World. Yeah, same thing with the but, guys who are directing these Star Wars spinoffs where Ryan Johnson or, or Josh, and Josh Trank and Gareth Edwards. Or Josh Trank yeah. doing Fantastic Four. And I don't see any evidence yet that, that in those circumstances, unlike Mission Impossible, like they're being asked to do their movie. They're being asked to basically work for cheap on the much bigger production. Right? Yeah. So that that's sort of unfortunate because I would rather see one of these indie guys do a Mission Impossible and be allowed to do it. Here's my only counterpoint to that is yeah. that there is actually no apparatus from which those directors now come up from other than indie that's, films. So right. you can be like, oh, this would be like if Richard Linklater sold out and did, you know, um, a Nancy Myers movie or something like that. But in reality, like if Colin Trevor wants to do Jurassic World, the only way he can get there is by directing an indie sci-fi movie and then jump up and i don't know whether or not ryan johnson or josh trank or those guys are ever like i cannot wait to direct star wars obviously it's pretty hard to say no to that like yeah if if they're like here's the money truck and here's star wars are you down you're like yeah i'm down but that being said i just think that we're like judging them against like they're not keeping it 100 anywhere anymore when there really isn't that Forty million and below budgeted. That's true, but Hollywood I'm not movie. even. I'm not even um, complaining about their choices. It's just that I would rather see more of their filmmaking yeah. as opposed to them making. You'd rather there be another film. Looper than there be another Star Wars. Just in terms of their personality. Yeah. Yes. Um, the other thing is, the other. I really, really. You know, I love Simon Pegg. I really want Ving Rhames to keep getting keep getting checks. But the one cool thing about the Mission Impossible movies that they rarely take advantage of, J.J. Abrams did a little bit, is, is having the idea crew. of is having the team yeah, and having the specialists. And the, the first one was great at that because on the one hand you had Emilio Estevez for some reason, but then you also had like Jean Renault and you had this weird global conglomerate of actors, totally random actors doing things. I would love to see a Mission Impossible movie where they just gave big checks and a lot of breathing room to super weird, interesting actors. Hey, buddy, remember that <laughs> exactly. monologue we were going to give you? Yeah, it's yeah. going to Ving Rames. It's going to Ving Rames now. <laughs> like that's that's all I'm saying. Like like Ben Mendelsohn, who is the best thing in Bloodline and is now going to be in a Star Wars movie, which is fascinating maybe, yeah. and interesting. Yeah. He's going to be in Rogue One maybe. Um the, the what is it? It's a, a side movie. It's the one about the bounty hunters, theoretically, because I shouldn't. We shouldn't. Dis, you know, we shouldn't spread rumors since we are employees of the Disney Corporation. That's right, but and, and we is, are briefed on all creative decision making. It the is a, reportedly the one about bounty hunters that steal the plans for the Death Star that they then really. Used. Yeah. Wow. It's I don't a, go deep on those sites. I didn't know that. Um, but anyway, like I, I, all I'm saying is, it'd be cool to see someone like that in the Rogue Mission. What? Team. Rogue Nation? Ben Mendelsohn. You want Rogue the dude Nation. from Rogue One in Rogue Nation? I mean, it's all one rogue world. <laughs> yeah. Right? I know, man. Uh, okay, so should we wrap up with some slap talk? Yeah, I mean, last thing. before we're gonna, We should end with a slap. We did want to say, like, Mad Men is coming back. Oh, yeah, right. We should talk a little bit about Mad Men. I, I've seen it. I got to see it. I know people were concerned. <laughs> it's good. Um... You don't like when I talk about screeners. You like to just you like the purity of the experience. I may have seen it too. What? Look at you. Yeah. 
If people, if you're watching on YouTube, you should look at the face that he's making right now. Cat and the canary is, right here. Yeah. It is Cheshire. Cheshire. I, you know, I don't want to let you live. So what were you going to say, though? I think that it's, I mean, it's interesting, and I'm going to write about that, about this this week, too. It is definitely interesting the way that the show is ending. And we're going to talk about it more next week, obviously, when people have seen it. I'm going to write your but, headline right now. Madman colon, interesting. <laughs> Madman colon, interesting. Better call Saul. Fun to watch. Like let's just let's just lower the bar a little bit for this. This criticism's gotten a little too high high minded. Um, you know, it's not a victory lap. It's not headed towards anything that anyone can recognize. And I don't think it's a spoiler to say that the season premiere or mid season premiere, whatever nonsense they're trying to spin it as, feels just like kind of almost like a hard reset. Are you again. talking about you know, the part where uh, Don Draper plays the Star Spangled uh, anthem, Star Spangled Banner with an electric guitar at Woodstock? That scene. I thought that was a little bit on the nose, but at the same time, like, I respected the artistic choice. Yeah. It, it's, like, their marketing for it has been so divorced from the weirdness and specificity of the show that it doesn't feel like, I mean, the ratings aren't going to be big. It's not going to be like some, oh, we finally caught up and now we're ready to see this thing through. The marketing has been the uh, one ad that they did during the Emmys where it was, like, about nostalgia. Mm-hmm. And it, it was this beautiful, sweeping, romantic thing about a show that has never really been sweeping or nostalgic. And then... Like during Better Call Saul, there are those ads where they ask the most random people to to talk about their experience. And there's like some, Gary some woman who I think – is Gary Oldman in one of them? Yeah, I think so. I haven't seen that. There's one who's a woman who's just like author, a novelist. And she's like, I grew up and my mother was like Betty Draper. And I'm like, I don't care, to be honest. This doesn't make me want to watch it. But it's a, it is a weird moment. One of the all-time great TV series ending – it, its arc is not like the arcs we've seen recently is what yeah. I'm saying. It, it started I mean, they, in obscurity, they, it became a sensation, and now it's kind of going away. Right. Well, well, I'm sure that that, that that tune will change over the next couple of weeks. Do you feel that? Do you think – do you feel it building? I don't think that it's just going to be seven episodes of, like, chill time in the office. No, I don't mean that. I just mean, like, I think that – we as a TV audience have gotten a little bit spoiled or a little bit used to the idea that TV shows are telling a specific story. It goes back to what you were saying about Breaking Bad. And when you get to the final season, usually, or not usually, but recently, we've become accustomed to being like, finally, those an- we're going to get the answers to those questions we've sure. been asking. The case is going to be solved. Do you, you have know, any White questions gonna... about Mad Men? No, it's just like, okay, we're going to spend more time with these people. Yeah, I and, wish we and could one spend thi- five more years with them. That's what I was going to say. The, the funniest thing about the show lasting this long, spanning eight years now, for as visionary as it has been, ultimately my feeling is very old-fashioned, which is this was kind of a workplace drama, yeah. and I would love to hang out in that workplace for many more years. Yeah, like I don't ER actually. Style. Let's do it. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, so that 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 is not that doesn't feel like modern age, golden age of drama kind of thing to say, but that's what it ultimately is. Um, speaking of golden age of television drama, speaking of things that I wish could last forever, or speaking of things that feel like they're lasting forever, Andy and I have stuck with the slap. Yeah, we did. And we don't even have the sound effect to talk about it. But I, um, I, there, there are TV shows. Remember like a couple weeks ago, I was like, hey, you should check out Fortitude on Pivot. It's great. There are polar bears. <laughs> I haven't seen it since. I'm going to be honest with everybody. I really like We're the first sticking six it out, episodes. man. I, I have seen more hours of The Slap than I have seen any other TV show, I think, Do in Do you think that you've seen more hours of The Slap than Melissa George has accents? Yeah. Yeah. I mean... Here, here, here's some. Here's something. The more time you spend with a show, Chris, I don't know if you're you're the same way. I, my heart melts a little. Bit. I get a little more charitable toward sure. it as an endeavor. I also feel, and I don't say this enough, from a critical vantage point, 
anytime you try to make art, Chris, like that, that's worthy of a little, not a slap, but it's it's friendly cousin to clap. Yeah, it is. When you put yourself out there and you try something, I respect that. Okay, you know, it was brave to make to make this show, and there were there were moments. Andy texted me the other day saying that he liked the Connie episode. The f- okay, so the Connie episode. Now I don't even think we can recap this because we don't have no, time. We're, we're just going gonna, on let's just talk about maybe but, favorite moments. So the Connie episode was the one I was most afraid of because the Connie episode was the one that was about the teenage babysitter who had right. a crush on Peter Sarsgaard and actually acted on the crush on Sarsgaard in the Sars yard. In the, in right the Sars yard, the, yeah. Right before the slap happened, the first part of that episode was what's the word I'm looking for? More or less the worst, which is when people are like, hey, let's write about young people and the way young people have parties in which they take candles and they light them from a back alley up the stairs into their parties where right. they pop vitamins. Guess what people drink. under the age of 30 don't have? A sense of decorating outside of their parties. <laughs> I know. So I was pretty down on that. However, this, the best thing about that episode was that it took – it took a turn completely away from the garbage slap stuff. Yeah. And, okay, guilty here. I may or may not be a little bit of an emotional sucker for stories about fathers and daughters. And the story—I <laughs> mean, your face just melted, but oh my God. not in a good I way. I can't believe you are invoking parenthood for this. <laughs> I'm just saying why, maybe. Also, I did I mention that I had a fever and I'm on medication that was affecting my central nervous system? <laughs> I was kind of touched by where it went. Like, it was kind of an intense, out-of-left-field, over-the-top dramatic storyline where she discovers that uh, her father was basically bisexual Jeff Buckley, uh, who she did not grow up with. Uh, There was a treasure trove of memories and artifacts. Yeah, that guy kept a lot of his stuff. That guy also uh, decided to break out a brand-new, never-worn purple hoodie for the day he's moving out of his home for the last 20 years. (laughs) Which is just a weird wardrobe choice where you're like, I'm going to be carrying yeah. dusty boxes for 12 hours. I better get some white sneakers That was also on. weird because he's like, oh, you're Connie. I'm glad you're here. I'm moving to California right now. In, in 10 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> the, sh- the biggest problem with the slap. That would have been dope Melissa if like, Connie hadn't come, so he just moved all that stuff out in the yard and lit it on fire. It was just like, whoops. <laughs> <laughs> well, memories. <laughs> I think the biggest problem with the slap, other than pretty much all of the slap, is the reliance on the the laziest dramatic device known to 21st century man and woman, which is gazing. That's the second laziest voiceover. Second laziest. Number one laziest is gazing longingly and meaningfully at photographs. Yeah. It's like, well, I, I, I could, maybe I could show you how we feel about this person, or we could pull out a photograph of them looking at me and, just and I can touch it and I can it. be like, why didn't dad love me? I know. So and speaking one, of one tear could drop. Speaking of parenthood, I did want to, ask you about the most recent episode which followed rosie and uh don from the newsroom and their lovely child hugo and why are uh, you gonna do why are you gonna do aisha like that well no i just want to i want because I, I don't want to spend too much time on this but i wanted to ask you about the depiction of the brooklyn school system yeah very accurate <laughs> very accurate i mean here's a couple things here's here can we talk about Melissa George's accent? Can we quickly just mention the fact that that kid comes running out of the school and is like, I want lollipops and runs up to a cart that says roasted nuts? Yeah, or a hot dog vendor, I thought. Yeah. I mean, that's just New York. That's just what New York is like now since you left. I mean, <laughs> lollipops are everywhere. I mean, it's also great that Rosie and Gary are presented as these poor, struggling people yeah. who, all, who have a floor-through, beautifully distressed loft, have a full-time <laughs> nanny, 
pay for constant babysitters, multiple babysitters, have a car, and also breeze in and out of incredibly expensive preschools being like, guess this one didn't work out, although I've heard it's a good school. (laughs) I don't want to see a show about getting into preschool in New York City. I don't want to see a documentary or a horror show. But I also would like just a little, little bit, of, a little bit more weight to it. Yeah. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's why this show is ultimately garbage. <laughs> because I've watched five or six seasons of The Walking Dead. I know what monsters look like, and they look like the character of Rosie. And the show is not. My emotionally... son's been traumatized. <laughs> the show is not emotionally or intellectually intelligent enough. Yeah. To do what it's trying to do. It yeah. is trying to thread a needle to suggest nuance. To suggest that maybe she had postpartum depression, so she abandoned her child. Maybe, I don't know, maybe. I can't answer the choices. But it does things like, it has Gary basically be like, guess what? I, I am living with the monster at the bottom of the well at Herschel's <laughs> farm in season two of The Walking Dead. The one that was bloated with rotted, fetid sewage, wa- sewage water. Like, okay, that's who I'm living with. Time to check out. Immediately go to a gallery. Just put his paintbrush in a struggling Pratt student. Yeah. Come home and then be like, my place is here protecting my family. I love you. <laughs> you can't do those pyrotechnics and have me on board. He had a dope suit at court that day when he shows up at, at the family court that day. Also, very brisk court session there. You know yeah, what I mean? They, kept they went moving. straight from opening arguments, called three witnesses, took a break. Changed an entire legal strategy. Then all Michael Nori destroys her life. Yeah, Michael Nori should destroy her life. Her life is worthy of destruction. Yeah, that was more but like more a free that, throw for him. Yeah, I'm just saying that this show, The Slap, had the full weight of like the NBC Universal Corporation behind it. Like they were in on this show when they were filming yeah. it before it debuted. And at some point, one of the professionals involved could have pulled Melissa George aside and been like, "I just want you to know, Melissa, we love what you're doing." And the show is set in New York, and no one talks like that. This is not Guys and Dolls. You cannot pretend to be in Taxi Driver when you're supposed to be a Brooklyn whatever she is. She's like, I got to protect my family. You can't traumatize I, my son. He's traumatized. He's traumatized. You can't be like that. Like, that's not helping things. It's a very delicate ecosystem, okay? It's very delicate. All right. I mean, wh- wh- what do you feel about this? We've spent a lot of time on it. I feel like maybe the steam is left. I think the steam's the left a bit. I mean, how many more are there? A six. Six? <laughs> no, no. One. One. Oh. Let's talk about resolution. I mean, it's all going to come slapping out this week. All right. So we'll stick the landing with it next week then. With Richie. Yeah. Of all the characters on the show, who are you more excited to spend time with than Richie? Big time photographer. Uh, okay, so we'll talk about the slab next week. Maybe we'll talk about a little bit of Bloodline next week. And obviously we'll have a lot of, uh, a lot of Mad Men. And a lot of interrogation about my lack of viewing of the last six episodes of Fortitude. <laughs> but my central nervous system is fine now. Thanks for asking. Thank God for that. All right, I'll see you next week, man. Great job, Baranski! Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or go to grantland.com and click on podcasts.